Genesis chapter 16, as we continue in our account of Abraham. And we've seen along the way in our account of Abraham two really two primary themes. We see the promise of God, this very important covenant called the Abrahamic covenant, given to Abr Abram at this time and Sarai. And, and yet we've also seen the human side of that equation. We've seen Abram in his journey to Canaan and in regards to his walk of faith and trusting God to keep his promises. And it has been a journey of faith. And there has been ups and downs. There has been successes and failures as we see God developing the faith of Abraham. A faith, by the way, that God uses for an example for us in the New Testament, which tells us that our journeys of faith are, with, are not without failure. They aren't without tripping and falling. They aren't without lapses of faith. But God restores and God teaches us to learn to trust him. And he does so, as we've seen time and time again, through the reassurance of his word. He reassures Abram over and over again of the word he gave in the original promise, which is the same God does for us. Here in chapter 50, back in chapter 15, we saw God's promise reaffirmed once again, didn't we, to Abram as God sought to reaffirm to him the assurances that God would keep his promise to Abram, especially of a seed and of the possession of the land. And as we get to chapter 16, we find once again the Abram's and Sarah's, Sarai's faith wearing thin. And I see another lapse of faith. Let's read the first eight verses, or excuse me, six verses here of Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And after Abram had dwelt in ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Well, we see behind this event really the, the same problem of, of a, of a tr trusting God's promise. It had been 10 years in the land of Canaan, we saw in this passage, and still no children. And no doubt Abram and Sarah are wondering, how are we going to be the parents of millions and millions of children and we don't even have a child yet and time and the, and the clock is ticking so to speak and and so there's a problem in this first section we see this this lapse of faith and really what we see in verses two through four then in in Sarai's alternative plan is this lapse of faith a failure to wait on the Lord to keep his promise is really at the core of this isn't it God had made a promise. He had reassured them over and over again. But once again, time wore their patience in, and they failed to wait on the Lord. And so Sarah came up with a plan. Remember, Abraham had come up with a plan in the last chapter that maybe one born in his house of a servant, Eliezer, was to be the heir. And God says, no, you're going to bear a child. And, and now it's Sarai's turn to come up with plan B or C, maybe by this time. And her plan was to 
to give her servant Hagar to Abram, his wife, to bear children. Now, this was acceptable in those days. This was not out of the norm. This wasn't something that was just something conceived wildly in their imaginations. It was, it, it occurred. It was acceptable. Nobody in the neighborhood would have frowned upon this Abram taking Hagar as wife. The problem is, from a biblical perspective, is that cultural norms are not necessarily biblical norms, are they? There's a lot of things in our culture that are acceptable, and too often Christians fall in line with those things, but they're not necessarily biblical norms. And we have to remember Isaiah 55, where God tells us that his ways are higher than our ways. There is a biblical worldview and there's a secular worldview. There are God's ways, they're higher than man's ways. And I like the fact that he says higher, just doesn't say different. He says higher. They're better, they're higher, they're righteous, they're holy, and they're safe as well in our human experience. In reality, how can we expect a society that is unsaved, in rebellion against God, who've abandoned the Bible as a basis of wisdom, to establish policies and practices and perspectives that are good in life? We shouldn't expect that out of the unsaved because the tendency of human nature, our sinful nature, is to design policies that are convenient for me. We become the center of our universe rather than God, and we base our policies, practices, and activities upon what is good for me. And too often, those perspectives and values extend into Christian living, how we operate in the workplace, how we function in our pastimes, how we manage our money, how we direct our families, how we view our church and our participation. And believers are susceptible because we look around us and everybody's doing it. We fall into that trap. It's a tendency of our nature. And besides us, we like to be accepted, don't we? We think we need to be accepted by the community in order to be successful, when in reality, our, we must answer to God first because cultural norms are not necessarily biblical norms in our lives. And so we have to ask ourselves, in this first observance of this chapter, are we like Sarah? Are we operating within cultural norms or biblical norms? Have we taken everything in our lives to the Lord? And so we are here today to learn God's ways, the higher ways of God, so that we can live in the realm of a divine biblical worldview in all perspectives and practices in our lives. Because we must remember, Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil world. That's part of the salvation package. And not only are we delivered from eternal condemnation, but we're also delivered from the condemning practices, the evil practices of this world system. And that is what it means to grow in grace, doesn't it? To learn God's ways because we are in the world, though we are not of the world. We are pilgrims. We are strangers to the ways and practices of the world. And I emphasize that this morning because there are so many ways, if you're honest with yourself, that we live life according to the standards we grew up around us. And we don't even sometimes consider, is this honorable to God? Is this right before God? in our lives. This is how God would have me to live. You know, we sing the songs that we want to know God, we want to honor Him, we want to love Him, and we need to look to Him, don't we, in all aspects of life. And God is faithful, isn't He? And I believe in this practice, that's what God was showing Abraham and Sarai, that His ways are better, as He patiently dealt with them as He does with us. And so, first they base their decisions in life on cultural norms rather than biblical norms. They didn't go to the Lord in prayer. And secondly, they, they just failed to wait on the Lord. God had made a promise, and they had come up with another idea once before. And, and yet, you see, nowhere in this passage would God, would God have it this way. Is this God's will? Should we go to him in prayer? 
Is this an alternative, Lord? Is this where you're leading us, Lord? You know, it's not, and it's not all Sarai's fault, by the way. Abram went along. He heeded his wife. It reminds you of another man way back in Genesis chapter 1 who took, he heeded his wife and ate of the forbidden fruit. And maybe it was a safe decision for a husband that wanted peace in the home. But it wasn't all her fault. He listened. He went along. You know, and today is Mother's Day, men, and I'm not saying that you should never listen to your wives because some men will take this home. But guess what I've learned today? We shouldn't heed our wives. Maybe that's the only thing you're going to take home today. But we recognize that God gave our wives to us as helpmeets. They're to give us balance and perspective and to offer those, those perspectives and viewpoints that we don't have as men by nature. And, and marriage is that partnership, isn't it? And so what was missing was, Ab was Abram leading his wife to her knees to pray, to pray and seek God's will. And so Abram's in, in on this. He's, she can't blame Sarai for everything. And, and really, that's what God wants out of life today. And I think the church needs today is couples that are determined to do God's will in their lives who come together to seek God's face instead of existing in, in the conflict of differing opinions is to come before God humbly to seek his will, his direction in all areas of life so that the unsaved will see the preeminence of Christ in our personal lives, in our corporate lives as church because we seek God first. You know, prayer may have caused them to remember God's promise. And they said, no, no, remember back... You know what, the Eliezer thing, God reminded us that he is going to keep this promise. Just a moment in prayer might have reminded them of God's original promise so they would rely on his plan rather than their own best plan. But it can be hard to wait, can't it? We are not naturally patient people. And I know I am a very impatient person. I uh, do not like standing in lines or sitting at stoplights. When I visit my family in the Twin Cities and there's traffic everywhere, I am so glad that I get to just rather hit deer in northern Wisconsin than wait in traffic in, back in the, in the big city. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait for whether it's, a, whether it's the God keep, keeping his promise or whether it is an answer to prayer. We're told in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we, if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that he, we have the petitions that we asked of him. If we ask according to his will, that's always the teaching of Jesus. That if we align ourselves with his will, we can ask what we will. If we want his will, we can ask, and, we, and we're going to have an answer. But sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes it may be no, yes, maybe. Sometimes it's wait. There's no answer immediately. But we can rest in the assurance of this promise that God hears. If we sincerely seek his will, his face in the matter, he hears and he will answer in his time and according to his plan. In Abram and Sarai's case, it was a matter of God was going to wait until this was impossible so he could really show who he was. And sometimes God does that in our lives. He keeps his promise, but in such a unique, miraculous way that we had no idea was coming, that he could, so he could show his love, his grace, his power, his comfort, and we just need to learn to wait and on him. You know, it's really interesting that Jesus prays for an prayed for an alternative to the cross. I mean, you know, he knew this was God's will, but remember Luke 22, 41 says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
He prayed for something that he, he was convinced was God's will, but he prayed for the alternative. But the bookends of that prayer was the will of his father. He began the prayer that way he, in, his, in his statement. If it is your will, take this cup from me, nevertheless your will be done. Even the Son of God, in his, in his desire to look for an alternative, maybe there's a different plan, maybe God's going to suddenly push us a different direction, he prayed in respect to the will of God. And if Jesus did that, where does that leave you and I? We find our rest when we are willing to wait on God's promises in respect to his will in our lives. And when we so easily do the Sarai thing. And come up with an alternative plan, and I can't wait 10 years, Lord, and we've got to help you out. And we're going we're gonna to hurry up your work, and we're going to just charge ahead and get her done. What's wrong with getting the, getting the will of God done, at least from my eyes and my perspective, instead of waiting? And God has that lesson to teach all of us, to wait on the Lord, doesn't he? Several verses here I just wanted to throw out there in regards, I call them waiting promises. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I like that because it doesn't say he's going to give you a quick answer <clears throat> once you learn to wait. He says he's going to strengthen you to wait. Wait on him. Psalm 37, 7, in our scripture reading this morning, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, we're told. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He heard my cry or my prayer. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song on my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust the Lord. And so he waited, which indicates that this prayer, this cry wasn't answered initially, but when God did, he really answered and set him upon the rock. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Micah 7, 7, therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The verses in Hebrews 4 that don't mention the word wait, but I believe re relate to this, says there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his own works as God did from his. This last verse tells us the rest of waiting comes from ceasing from our own works. And that's what Sarai needed to do. She needed to trash her plan and go back to her knees and wait on the Lord. And too often we like to solve our own problems, resolve our own difficulties, answer our own cries. And God says, he that is entered into the rest, God's rest, really a reference in that chapter of the Sabbath rest that we have in Christ, he has ceased from his own works. We need to cease, cease from working and instead be waiting for the Lord. These verses bundle together the concept of walking by faith and waiting. They're like one and the same thing. To wait on the Lord, to rest on the Lord, to trust in the Lord, is to trust the Lord with a confident patience that he is faithful. And that's a lesson Sarah needed to learn as a lesson before you and I today. Someone said to me recently that Matthew 6.33 hasn't changed. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We seek him first. And so Abraham and Sarah did not wait. They came up with their own plan and then they suffered the consequences even far beyond themselves in their failure to wait. And God warns us of that, doesn't he? 
Galatians 6, 7, and 8, those well-known verses, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever man sows, that he will also reap. We're familiar with that, but then we're reminded, for he who sows of the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows of the Spirit will of the Spirit reap, reap life everlasting. When we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. This is a warning, this is a promise, this is a guarantee. It's just going to happen. When we devise our own plans, when we walk in independence from God, we will reap corruption. The problem is, I think, in this world today is we're so short-sighted. We don't see down the road. Anyway, that's why we trust God, because he can see down the road. And we think that the decision we make in the present, even if it's a cultural norm, is good for us. Because we see, don't see much further than the end of our noses when it comes to time. But we trust, but God gives us this warning. You're going to reap corruption, and that's what occurred in the life of Abraham and Sarai. Because what we see in this chapter, then right immediately... We see, once Hagar conceived, we see this conflict, don't we? We see jealousy and bitterness, anger and resentment. Hagar despised or looked with contempt, some of your Bibles say, on Sarai, because maybe now she's the favored one. And that really made Sarai mad. She was hurt, she was jealous, she was angry in their home because of that decision. Because they had stepped outside of the will of God in doing their own thing. And that's where it came from. This wasn't just a spontaneous thing. It's because they had departed from God. And then she plays the blame game, doesn't she? She told Abram, it's not my fault, it's your fault. I gave her to you. The Lord judged between you and I. She plays that blame game. She blamed everyone else for her hurt. Hagar, Abram, and even the Lord. The Lord judged between me and, me and you. It reminds you just like the garden again. Where Adam blamed Eve and God who gave her to him. Eve blamed the serpent, and of course the serpent just slithered away. But we like to blame things for our, for our failures, for our, for our circumstances. We like to blame others. No doubt in that moment, Sarai realized this was a mistake. It was too late. It was too late. The damage was done. I think as Christians, we have to be very careful to not blame something for our own failures, but rather take ownership before the Lord in humility. Because when we lash out at others, we're really saying, God, I don't like what you're doing in my life. I don't like what's happening to me. It's someone else's fault. But instead, if Sarai would have, at that moment, in humility before God and honest transparency, taken ownership for her foolishness, if she was willing to say, I blew it, and blaming no one but herself, life would have been different. I mean, there's still the child was still going to be born. But things would have been different in the home, in their lives. In this, because when you begin to blame others, sometimes it drives a wedge that takes a long time to overcome. We like to blame often other things for our failures. I've seen Christians sometimes who have gotten away from the Lord through the years, if I can use an example, that come back to the Lord several years later, and then they say, you know, it really wasn't all my fault. The Lord had me, had me walk this path. And I'm thinking in my mind, when I'm thinking of the scriptures, I think absolutely not. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's never God's will that we walk in the flesh to learn a good lesson. We're to walk in the spirit to be taught of God. 
And you know, but that kind of excuse kind of softens the blow on our ego and our pride to think that I really failed that badly. The, th the, question, the thing we have to come to grips with, face to face with, is Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And know as Christians, we have a new nature, a new life in Christ. We still retain that nature which has a propensity to sin, and we just have to own it. Because God says that's the way it is. We have to face ourselves. And we must accept and, and admit the, the, the sinful tendencies and the, the, the weaknesses of the flesh as God shows me me. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 tells us that we are insufficient by nature, but Christ is all-sufficient. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Galatians 2, 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Our sufficiency is from him, and so we need to recognize that in my flesh dwells no good thing. John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Romans 8.3 says the, that we're weak in the flesh. John 15.5, Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. And that's the path to, be, to, to experiencing the rest of God, the joy of God, to enjoy the abiding life in Christ, to share in his life, is through the path of humility, honesty, and transparency in admitting when we've blown it. It's just being honest, not looking for an excuse. I shudder sometimes when I see Christians who have, who have fallen into sin go to secular psychologists for answers for their problem. And, the note, and inevitably, sometimes secular, sometimes even Christian psychologists find some organic or behavioral thing that gives them a reason why they did what they did. Instead of going to the great counselor, the one who created us, the one who, who sees me from afar as off, who knows me, and allow him to reveal to me, what I need to learn. And to take ownership for my failures. So Sarah is blaming everyone and everything for her lapse of faith. The next thing you see, this expression of the flesh, is cruelty then in verse 6. <clears throat> Excuse me. She dealt harshly with her. Instead of facing up and fessing up, she took out her hostility on her maid. That's how it is sometimes, isn't it? You know, sometimes husbands, you know, you know I... I admit maybe I didn't quite do this, but you know, when you're when you're growing in the Lord, you have a bad day, things go, everything goes wrong, and you come home and all you want is your own peace of mind, and you come home, you know, you kick the dog and yell at the wives and ignore excuse me, yell at yell at the kids and ignore the wife and and because of the flesh. And that's what she did here. Instead of recognizing she was the problem, she took it on Hagar, didn't she? So severely that Hagar fled. All of which could have been avoided with humble confession. Well, there's also consequences, not only this expression of the flesh, but its consequences, not only in the short term, disrupted household and the conflict, but also we've got to consider the long term. Down in verse 12, in his conversation with Hagar, which we'll get to in a minute, God points out the fact that her son will be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And Ishmael, we know, becomes the father of, of many of the Muslim, or excuse me, the Arabic people. And all that's gone on in the Mideast to the present day is partly a consequence of this decision. Because the, the children of Ishmael claim rights to Jerusalem, Temple Mount, and all that as well. 
long-term consequences. Now, who would have imagined? Who would have imagined? And Abraham and Sarai and their entourage that this cultural decision to have a child through Hagar would have such far-reaching consequences. You see, we don't see the future, but we can trust a God who does, and we're willing to turn to him in prayer, in dependent faith. He protects us from these things. He protects us from what we don't see. It's the, we should understand this because it's like a parent and their children. You tell your children sometimes no, and you direct them in a direction they don't want to go because you see down the road. You see the consequence of that, of, of that decision. And so our faithful Father does for us. The second half of the chapter shifts gears now, doesn't it? In the first half, we're dealing with a lapse of faith. In the second half of this chapter, God deals with Hagar. Let's go ahead and pick it up where we left off. In verse end of verse 6, it says, She fled from her presence. And verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, hey, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall, have, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore the, the well was called Berlaharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And so Hagar flees, and she's sitting by the spring, and the angel of the Lord comes to her, follows her. And as you read this passage, you recognize this angel of the Lord is no other than Jehovah himself. You see that in verse 10 in the promise. He says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. In verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And she came to realize in the course of the conversation that it was God who came to her, Jehovah himself. What a tremendous illustration this is of God's love for us. Because we know Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the amazing thing is when God, when God seeks us, when he pursues us, when he reaches down to save us, it's all in his grace. We saw in the nation of Israel the illustration that God didn't choose them because they were such wonderful people, but simply because God chose to set his love on them. We see in the New Testament that we're saved by grace through faith. God simply loves us because he chose to love us. And we celebrate that in, our, in the Lord's table, doesn't it? God initiated his pursuit of us at the cross, did he not? All he asked then of us is a response. You know, sometimes we think we seek the Lord, we found the Lord, and the Bible tells us to seek him while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. It's because he is near, it's because he has opened himself up to you, revealed himself to you that he asks us to come, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether as believers, as unbelievers, we come in saving faith to rest in the salvation 
God has provided at the cross or whether we come as a hurting believer to find rest. He pursues us. He loves us with an unconditional love. Hagar was being disobedient. She was a runaway slave, servant. She was angry and mad. She had treated her mistress with contempt. And yet God comes anyway. And he comes to us wherever we are at in life. God comes to us. It doesn't mean that God accepts or approves our behavior, our lifestyle. But God accepts us just as we are, we like to sing, doesn't he? Not that he accepts our sinful person, but instead when we turn to him in response to that love, in faith in Christ, he saves us and cleanses us and restores us and then accepts us in Christ. But he comes wherever we, at, wherever we are. God does not ask us to clean up our lives to come to him. He just comes wherever we're at and seeks us. What a God of long-suffering we have. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, just for a moment. Here, this well-known passage in regards to reconciliation in verse 18, we are told, reading my numbers wrong, sorry. Verse 18 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, not crediting their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You see, God was in Christ reconciling the world, but notice the direction, it's to himself. It wasn't that God was meeting us on our level and compromising with us in our lifestyle. But God came to us in saving grace. He was in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And when we think of reconciliation, we always think of meeting in the middle in the human experience. But with God, it is we that have to move, not God. God brings us up to his condition. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He forgives us of our sin. He closes us with the righteousness of Christ in that reconciliation. But, but he does come to us wherever we're at. And that's what we see in Hagar. And going back to Genesis 16, God asks them a question. He already knows the answer to. It's always interesting when God asks questions. Like, you know, what are you doing? What are you up to? Where you been? Whatever. And he knew the answer, but he asks it in his own unique way, in his gentleness, to help her to face herself. That's why God asks questions. In the resurrection passage in John 11, John said, after Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life, he says, believest thou this? Ask the question. Helps us face ourselves. And he does that with Sarai. Where have you come and where are you going? And she has to give him an answer. And she may have begun to realize this is the angel of the Lord, this is at least the messenger of God, if not God himself, and Okay, you know, do I, do I, do I, how do I coat, sugarcoat this? No, I like Hagar's answer. She says, I'm fleeing. I'm fleeing from my master. Well, she could have said, I'm fleeing my problem rather than facing it, she might have said. And that was a great answer because it's at that point in life that Hagar could cast her burdens on him and to unload on him. 
to come to him and find rest. And so God, the angel of the Lord here, answers her gently and simply says, return to your mistress. Okay, you've, you've admitted what you've done. Now, if there is repentance, if there is honesty, here's what you need to do, return. Make it right. Return. Now, that had to be really hard. You know, sometimes conflict occurs in relationships, husbands and wives, families, members of the church. And God always wants us to get up and return, to face it, to reconcile. Hard thing to do because you can't control the other's reaction. Hagar maybe could have gone back and apologized for her contempt and, and make things right, and Sarai more likely would not have, did not capitulate. But God still holds us accountable for our part of the equation. We, we are not to avoid the resolution of conflict because we are afraid of the outcome. God says, get up and go back. He does it gently, directly, but he tells her to do the right thing. Didn't mean the problem was going to go away, but maybe in God's tenderness towards Hagar, she realized that he would be sufficient. His grace would be sufficient. He would be with her. And then after that simple directive, as after he provides light and direction for her life, he gives her a wonderful promise, does he is not as well. In verse 10, he says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. It should not be counted for multitude. And that's a tremendous blessing. What Hagar, like any woman, wanted was a family. And to be blessed with a, with a promise of being a mother of a nation was a tremendous blessing to a simply, simple, to a lowly, simple servant. You know, God fulfilled that promise. Genesis 25, 12 tells us that Ishmael had 12 sons that we know of him became a, a, a great nation. And it was a great blessing to her. And so God blesses her in spite of herself. And through the process of it all, Hagar stands in awe of God. After God promises this great nation, she, verse 13, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. Have I also seen him? The God who sees, the God who understands, the God who knows where we are, knows our aches and our hurts and our pains and our struggles. He sees me. He understands me. He has compassion on me. And I have seen him. God became personal to her because he moved with compassion and she was willing to be upfront and honest with him. And no doubt here established or at least grew in a deeper relationship with her God. You know, the name of the well means, in verse 14, the well of the one who lives and sees me. And God does. He understands. That's why we're told throughout the scriptures, come. Not only to the unsaved to come for salvation, but for the hurting of heart. Come and find rest. Come unto him. Look to Jesus. Trust in him and wait upon him. And so God's loving and patient dealing with Abraham, Abram and Sarai in the developing of their faith, and God was patient. We've seen that throughout these chapters. And especially here, God's loving compassion for Hagar in her distress is an encouragement to us. Because God came to her to bring comfort and direction in her hurt and in her confusion. And he does that for us. He did it for us at the cross as we celebrate the Lord's table. He does it for us every day. 
But are we honest with him? Are we transparent with him? Are we responding to him? And so as we celebrate the Lord's table today, the God's ultimate expression of his loving pursuit of you and I and his efforts to rescue us from eternal damnation and deliver us from this present evil world, are we responding? I can't help but think of going back to the songs we sang at the beginning of the service. Are those the sincere desires of our heart and our efforts to come to know him? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today for the cross of Christ. Father, we turn now to remember and celebrate the Lord's death till he comes as you told us to. And Father, may as we meditate on our Savior, on his love for us, on the great pain and suffering he endured at the cross, may you encourage our hearts, may you grow our love for you and draw our pursuit of you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives and that you do know us and you do see us as you patiently work and develop us in our lives. So, Father, may the things we study today encourage and instruct us and may our celebration today lift up our Savior now, we pray in Jesus' name.